Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. are back for an all-new episode of Keep It Live from Gag City. I'm Iron Madison III. Well, they didn't condemn this place yet. I'm Louis Fertel. <laughs> I was just saying it's not very walkable here. Uh, I mean, the public transportation <laughs> is leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> They're constantly updating the public transportation every day. You know, um, the the bus system. We're getting the deluxe bus bus system next week. Oh, okay. So yes. Maybe then I'll be able to get across town. <laughs> Until then, I'm stuck here in Soho, Gag City. <laughs> um, I'm also delighted to say that we have a guest co-host this week, making his official Keep It debut. Although he played one of our, um games on our youtube channel with me um juan ramirez the chief theater critic at theaterly and you know my friend hello i am furiously tweeting uh gag city mayor eric adams to fix the fucking train (laughs) (laughs) that cannot be his jurisdiction i'm sorry let me see let me see the county lines He's probably there now, though, right. instead of doing his damn job. There's, so. some, there's some ribbon cutting happening at Gag City that Eric Adams is just, you know, <laughs> cheesing at. Um, so we have a lot to cover this week. But there's, there's truly so much going on. But first, we got to talk about these damn Golden Globes because they truly the nominations popped up yesterday and i have to tell you i forgot that we were even having golden globes no right do they exist don't they but also it's like the other thing happened where it's none of the same voting membership that exists before or it's like a third like a third of what we Mm. consider the hfpa still exists and now it's this whole other block of people so i'm it's like they look like normal golden globes nominations except wait it's way better way more qualified now and yet i still don't know how much I care or how much it matters if it is indeed a precursor to the Oscars anymore or just a completely separate conversation. Well, also Penske media bought them. <laughs> how could either of you forget the globes exist when Rachel Ziegler is tweeting about it daily? You know what? You think I follow her? I have to say <laughs> as a disruptor, I'm a fan. I don't know. <laughs> it just doesn't seem like any, but you know, it's like that kind of Renee rap quality of something about you is just a little, a word we don't use anymore. Ornery. You know, I just miss that quality. Mm. <laughs> mm. Right. A mm. tertiary cast member of Oklahoma, ornery. Yeah. 
I would say I like the concept of Rachel. Okay, sure. You know, I, I, we, into every generation, an annoying actress is born. Uh, and she's either actually annoying or she's perceived to be annoying. I think we remember that Anne Hathaway endured this for quite a bit, and now she's mother to everyone. That's a different uh, story, though, because Anne Hathaway's whole thing is people-pleasing, and this girl's thing is true. not. Yeah. Yes, this girl's thing is, um, I was not invited to the Oscars, but I will get there. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, she has that, she has that Sean Young sort of showing yes. up as bad girl equality. Oh. <laughs> Juan, it turns out you're a permanent guest host on this show. <laughs> Sean Young references Sean Young is appearing off-Broadway currently, by the way. Is she really? Is she? Yes, and her New York Times interview is wild because halfway through she just starts talking about Trump. And then it's, it's downhill is not where it goes, but it goes off the rails. That's interesting because I expect <laughs> rational back and forth rat with Sean Young. I don't know how this happens. <laughs> All right. Golden Globes. First thing first. Um, I'm going to address the misconception on Twitter, on social media in general, in articles from alleged journalists this week uh, that happens every fucking year. May, December is in the category for musical or comedy film. Right. I need you to know that the people making these films submit them to the categories themselves. So... The Globes themselves didn't just decide May, December is a comedy. It is a comedy, a black comedy, but we don't have to get into that debate again uh, this week. I'm just letting you know that the Globes did not decide that May, December is going to go up against Barbie, okay? The people who made May, December decided that May, December is going to go up against Barbie. I am pretty blown away by people not recognizing that May December has lots of broad comic flourishes in it. They are they're black comedy flourishes, but like the music stings. Natalie Portman need asking to see a storeroom and a in a pet store so she can mime sex by herself. I mean like it's very ab- absurd and the absurdity is comedy. But that said like there's a history of why the drama comedy binary is a little strange. Like for example, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Almost every line in that play up until the the last quarter you could call funny. Like you're laughing constantly at that play, but it is definitely a drama. So when we're talking about the Golden Globes, I think people are always going to submit their movie if there's an argument for either category where it's most advantageous to them. And it's probably easier for May, December to score in that category. Mm, Well, in that category, it's up against Barbie, Poor Things, American Fiction, The Holdovers, and Air, which I was talking with... um, my best friend drew about air which i had not seen yet and part of me was like that came out this year it felt like it came out last year because it came out so early and i was expecting that to be one of those movies that was sort of forgotten about by the time we roll around and yet it got a nomination so i guess i do actually need to go and see air um and i have not seen the holdovers yet but of this group poor things is my favorite film of the year so I would give it to that, but I do not think that it's going to win, obviously. It'll probably be Barbie. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen in that category. I really like Poor Things. I think it's like a big, I hate this phrase, big swing. But Emma Stone really carries the strange, she starts the movie and she's doing what I would call a 
an elevated Borat impression, and I was mad at her. I thought we were going to get that the whole movie. And then something, <laughs> without giving it away, her character evolves in, in, an, in an AI algorithmic way. She gathers more information, and the cat character evolves. And what she becomes is still a funny kind of robotic character, but it, it's very lived in. I don't know. You end up loving it. It's his most sentimental film. Yes, you end up stop thinking of the movie as an experiment and more like, we're in the thrall of this amazing comic actress. So... um I don't. No. Know, I don't even know what I would say. My favorite movie of the year is though. Nothing is like five stars to me. I thought Passages was amazing. Got a couple nominations here for. Yeah, um, and then we have Best Picture Drama, which is Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Past Lives, The Zone of Interest, and Anatomy of a Fall. I have not seen Zone of Interest yet, but I feel like that will be the one to take it. I don't know. I was talking to someone recently, and I feel like. Us gays get so mired in talking about who our favorite actress is, and then come award season, it's like going to be Oppenheimer who takes everything. Right. You know what's interesting? I, I feel like Killian Murphy is actually not that strong a front runner. We kind of are assuming he's going to take that category because he's the lead in the you know the gigantic drama of the year that everybody saw. But I have to say, I feel like I don't know if it's this year, but soon we're going to fast track the. Uh, uh, Paul Giamatti Oscar win. I don't know when it's going to be. They're not facing each other in, in the Golden Globes, obviously, because it's a difference between drama and comedy. But Paul Giamatti and the Holdovers, and have you guys seen that movie? You know, you haven't, Ira. Not, no, yet. not yet. Okay, it's a, it's a role that fits him like a glove, but at the same time, that fit makes you immediately fall in love with the movie and the time and the place and the feel of it. And... He he just he's undercredited anyway, so I'm sort of waiting for that moment. I don't know. I don't know that I need Killian Murphy to win an Oscar this year. That's all I have to say about that. Mm. I'd give him an Oscar for Wilfred. Wow, remember that? Mm-hmm. The rats. Yes, <laughs> they were talking. <laughs> uh, Killian is up against Bradley Cooper, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Coleman Domingo, Andrew Scott, and Barry Keoghan. A very queer category. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, <laughs> I would give it to... I don't know who I would give it to in this. I have not seen Maestro That's yet. That's the one I haven't seen. Uh, but I will say that Leonardo DiCaprio did not wow me in Killers of the Flower Moon. No. He was fine. Um, Andrew Scott is very good in... Um, all of us strangers in a film that I think is just fine uh, and made me angry um, at the end. I don't want to spoil it, but I'm very angry with this movie, and I love Andrew High. Um, feels like the a, director feels like there's a real difference between how gay guys perceive this movie and mm. straight people perceive this movie. I feel like they're likelier to love it than gay people who you know live these. What experiences. straight people do you know have seen this? movie? I know already? I'm inventing an entire category here, but <laughs> hypothetically, if they did see Claire Foy's husband, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, I will say that for me, the standout performances in this movie are Claire Foy and Jamie Bell. Mm. Period. Jamie Bell. I know I said this before when fucking Kate Mara was here. He is so good in Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool with Annette Benning, who I guess is just not getting nominated for shit this year and not yet. And I still think she kind of slayed. We need we need his time, okay? We need JB Bell's time. Yeah. Okay. I want to ring them bells in more ways than one. <laughs> uh, and I would say I, that Barry Keoghan, girl, I'm not gonna talk about whatever it was that was going on in Saltburn again. The, some of the girls gagged for it. Some of the girls were literally gagging. He was gagging on Jacob Elordi's cum right. in that bathtub. I think that Barry Keoghan is always good, but 
there's nothing to work with here. Zac Efron was not nominated, and Iron Claw was basically um, shut out by the Globes, and that is who I would actually give the Globe to. It's who I'd actually the maybe win. give the Oscar to. Wow. Um, it's, my, it's one of my favorite male performances of the year, aside from Charles Melton in May-December. Um, so I would actually give it to Coleman Domingo, um, who I think is great in Rustin and elevates what is kind of like a fine biopic. He's so great. He's always so great. But that movie is so mid and he does not really have any chance to shine. If it had been slightly gayer, I would be totally with you. Yeah, I would describe it as um, mid too. Love him. And of course, he just pops up legally in every A24 joint. We'll be no, able, truly. We will I see actually him really, really like Bradley Cooper in this movie. I've, I describe his performance as John Travolta in Hairspray, just sort of having, you know, queening out, as they say, in this fucking what? movie. <laughs> Listen, he, wait till you see the damn movie. He's having fun. I do think he's a better director than actor here, at least, though. Okay. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Carrie. Look around. He started out like that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So we've got actresses. Actresses is who we care about. Yes. So what do you think of this category? Yeah. Lily Gladstone, Carrie Mulligan, Sandra Hewler, uh, Annette Benning, Greta Lee, and Kaylee Spaney. By the way, this is the year of Sandra Hewler. Uh, I don't know how... Truly. Did we talk a lot about Anatomy of a Fall yet? I haven't seen it yet, so... Oh my God. I mean, to, to I'll, my I'll eyes... I'll check back in. There's Same. no competition in terms of who gave the best performance of the year. What she does in that movie is so... It's it's such an undertaking, and yet she's so unpretentious. It doesn't feel like she's making actorly choices. She's just inhabiting the role. Interesting movie. Easier movie to admire than love for me. Uh, have you seen it, Juan? No, not yet. Um, Neither that or um, what's the other one she's in? Oh, yeah, Zone of Interest, which is why it's the year of uh, this woman, Sandra Hewler. Um, But uh, in this film, uh, she's in this giant ski house with this husband. They have a particular relationship. He ends up dead, and then she's on trial for it. And you go through this process of of questioning who she is and how the— Press is Baby, say less. Her. Yes, <laughs> a woman, a woman on trial for murder. Yes, right. You, you should, you should have told me. That, you should have just told me this is Ira Bate. It's also French. Yes, come on. And also, no, you learn. Have either of you? Have you ever seen Tony Erdman? <laughs> oh, sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was fantastic in that. So I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to believe she's, she's terrific in these two as well. Yes. Uh, uh, j- just know that it is extremely worth seeing. And in fact, when I saw it with uh, my friend Nico at the Grove. Who was getting their fucking parking ticket behind us, like validated on the way out? Charles Melton. And so mm. all I know is that's probably the last moment he could just go to the Grove like that. It was really bone chilling. And then secondly, um, he must be running scared. He knows that anatomy that falls that girl too. You know what? I will say that Charles Melton has taste. If you've read interviews with him too, he is a consumer of film. Oh yes, you know, and I think that a lot of people ha- would make jokes about the um, Riverdale cast and CW, etc. But I think that cast is fucking great, to be honest. Uh, you know, I think Lily Reinhart is a star as well, and she's going to get more. And it really is taking us back to the shit that we grew up with, right? Like, how many people came out of the WB who are fucking fantastic? Right. I mean, Dawson's Creek alone, Katie Holmes and Michelle Williams. So. And then Joshua Jackson is, you know, running around dating every famous black woman he can. Yeah, he's so. with Lupita Nyong'o. And I don't think we've ever known who she was dating before, have we? She was, we sort of did, but it wasn't like a public relationship. But now they are ready to be papped. 
I guess. <laughs> Which, by the way, sp- speaking of ready to be papped, you know who else is fucking together? Um, Jewel and Kevin Costner. What the hell is that? Oh, yeah. Any questions? Girl, she's fucking with the wolves. I guess. Okay. <laughs> yellow stone and yellow knife are together. That's an Alaska joke. No, she used to live in the back of her car, right? Yeah, that's the one. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. How much car sex do you think she's had? Uh, well, in Alaska, in what life? the fuck else are you supposed to do? Yeah. If you're not if you're not racing sled dogs, baby, you're fucking. Uh, anyway, I don't know. I'm thinking about Jewel having car sex, but if you live in your car, I mean, that's probably where you do it. That's your home. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, moving on. Um. Right. As far as these women. For me, I have not seen Anatomy of a Fall yet, and so this might change. Uh, I also still need to see Nyad, and I, more, more and more people are telling me that I need to see Nyad. So it, it I'm going to be daffy, seeing it. It is a daffy screenplay, yes. but <laughs> Annette Benning is truly amazing, and it is such a story that if I tell you the script, you'll be like, yes, of course, this woman swimming you know, X amount of hours is such an insane, insane feat, but once you see it on her face, like the bruises, the, the emotional bruises, you truly are just mm-hmm. like... This is a performance. And again, you just want to see, I mean, like, we don't get this role all the time of like, alpha, bitch, I'm fucking gonna be swimming this fucking channel. I don't care what they say about me. I just like, there's like, it, the, the tone that she gives is so, I mean, I, mm. apparently everyone is defined as term in terms of likable or unlikable. And she inhabits unlikable in such a fucking rad way in this movie. So I have to root for it almost on principle. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to abstain from this category for now, but for me, the, the best performance of the year from a woman uh, is Emma Stone in Poor Things. And Absolutely. So we can talk about actress in a motion picture musical or comedy, which is Fantasia Barino for The Color Purple, Jennifer Lawrence, No Hard Feelings. Yes, I fucking love that me movie. Me too. And Excuse I, me. I'm, I'm Somebody sure at she... work was trashing this fucking movie yesterday. I went fucking Sissy Spacek in the bedroom dishes breaking <laughs> about this shit. <laughs> <laughs> what, what could you possibly... I mean, I feel like you either love it or you're meh on it. How could you possibly trash it? I, they were just like, oh, it's, you know... A rom-com trying to be all these other rom-coms of the past. I thought Jennifer Lawrence and Andrew Barth Feldman were perfectly matched in a way that, like, if I'm casting a movie, that would not have been intuitive to me. You know, like, he no. he has a particular energy and it's not, you almost feel like, it's not like she dominates the screen when she's on it. She's merely charming. But the two of them together are a perfect match. It's really great. In mm. a rom-com that has a fucking budget, mind you, by the way, that was sort of my biggest takeaway from seeing that. I'm like, okay, some money was spent here. Yes. Mm-hmm. Netflix can um, Natalie Portman in May, December. Uh, Alma Poisty in Fallen Leaves. Have not seen. seen uh, Margot Robbie in Barbie. I think, I mean, when people are pushing for Emma Stone. And sure, she's going to win this. Actually she's going to win this. No, yeah. I, have, I also have no concept of where Barbie is currently in the collective consciousness. Right. Especially in, in terms of award season, right? Everyone loves it, but... I'm here, by the way. Loved I didn't it, love it. Yes, but, but, well, you know what? We're not bringing that back up. Okay, well, I am because those commenters <laughs> fucking sucked and they were wrong. Yeah. They were like, this <laughs> is no, a movie for women. Like, no, it's not. Bitch, it's for everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where you do sort of want to see that movie and Greta rewarded in some way, but once you stack it up against everything else that's come out since, it's like, well, the reward has been rewarded already. You know, I don't, I don't know that it needs nominations yeah it made a billion dollars great yes right yeah um 
Okay, so I would, give, I would just, also give it to Emma. Sorry, I think she is a clown, and I say that with the utmost love and affection. We don't, yeah, we don't have enough. No. Comedia delante. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah, she's truly. like the reigning actress who you're like, thank God she's hosting SNL. You know what I mean? Like it gives her like right. 70s zany things to do that she will be up for. It's not contrived in any way. She never seems contrived. That's no. all, maybe mm. the greatest compliment I could give her. And I heard, be, being the, the resident Broadway co host, I heard her Sally Bowles and Cabaret was phenomenal. And I'm sad because there were rumors they were going to bring it back after COVID with her. Uh, instead of this cockamamie Eddie Redmayne production. <laughs> but, <laughs> but all to say, I heard Emma was fabulous and I've seen some some footage and she was... Eddie Redmayne will sure take any role where he gets to look like a ventriloquist dummy. I mean, he just loves that shit. He's got to shake off the Stephen Hawking, yeah. okay? That's an Easter egg for later. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, to wrap this up with our films, you know, we already talked a bit about Paul Giamatti for Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture Musical or Comedy. He's up against Nicolas Cage, Chalamet, Matt Damon, Joaquin Phoenix, and Jeffrey Wright. All I have to say is, I am very excited to see Wonka this weekend. Apparently but, people fucking love it, yeah. Yeah, but I don't know about all that. I am not, because it has wiped Renaissance off of a lot of IMAX screens, and that was kind of what I was planning to do this weekend. Yeah, I think I saw like the last possible Renaissance screening uh, like the other night. I finally got around to it, and I, I'm sad that it, Wonka may interrupt. What could be possibly gained from seeing Wonka on IMAX? Yeah, not much. Also, I have to say, uh, I want to quote my friend Alonzo Duralde, who's a, a film critic now for a site called The Film Verdict, but he is a uh, Willy Wonka stan, the original, the 1971, and I wanted his opinion mm. specifically on this movie. And apparently he says, think of it more as Paddington 3 than Willy Wonka 2, and you will leave satisfied because i have to say the reviews for this movie as as everyone's like delighted by timothy chalamet in this movie when you look at a review of the old willy wonka that's not really the vibe of willy wonka it's more like i was disturbed and every once in a while he hit a whimsical note you know nothing about it is i'm charmed by how fucking odious all the adults in this movie are i think also we're just happy to be charmed by timothy chalamet who gives off charming in general but has been playing some, like, nasty roles lately yeah, right. that aren't really charming. Some Shia LaBeouf-esque so, you know, roles, if you will. Yes. Ugh. Okay, take take the take the flesh out of your teeth <laughs> and let's Ma'am. eat some chocolate. <laughs> um, so this one I would probably give to, I mean, Joaquin Phoenix will probably get it, even though I fucking hate that movie. Um, I would give it to Jeffrey Wright, actually, who is very good at American fiction. I'm excited to um, see that. I will be watching that this weekend. And then we've got Best Supporting Actor, which is combines the categories. We've got Willem Dafoe, Robert De Niro, Robert Downey Jr., Ryan Gosling, Charles Melton, Mark Ruffalo. No one I enjoyed more than Charles Melton, oh, period. Melty Although melt. Mark Ruffalo is so fucking good in Poor Things. And it's nice to see Mark Ruffalo being good and funny on screen again instead of trying to get me to vote for Biden. It took a bit for me to warm up to his performance, though. I'll say something about the early, his early scenes were just, oh, we're going to be doing this sort of dandy character, huh? And then once <laughs> it was just like, okay, he's the foil, I sort of tapped in. But I actually preferred mm. Willem Dafoe in this movie, and I also preferred Rami Youssef. Um, I thought he was Love fabulous him. in the Rami is so fucking good. Uh, I can't believe Taylor Swift went to see his show. He also has the funniest line in the entire film when he first steps into the doctor's house, which had one person laughing in the theater. It was me, but um, <laughs> I'll leave it to listeners to, to decipher once they see it. <laughs> uh, Willem is also really fucking good, too. Uh, everyone everyone is on their A-game in um, 
poor things, except for Gerard Carmichael. Moving on. Um, <laughs> Wait, supporting also, actress. Speaking of, speaking of, before we move on, uh, I feel like all these actors, I don't know if I, these letterbox interviews are just getting like shuffled on over to me and my algorithm, but I keep finding out what everybody's favorite movies are. And I have to say, most of the actors, like Willem Dafoe, whatever he said, but like, very impressive. Like, everybody's seen a lot of interesting things. And then I saw an interview where Julianne Moore, uh, of May, December, was asked what her favorite Beyonce song was. And she unfortunately just goes, well, I mean, it has to be single, single ladies, ladies, right? And I was like, no, Julianne, it, it can be, be anything else. All the single ladies. Yes, all, she no. said all the single ladies. No. no. Girl. Oh, my God. Come on. Let's get, yeah, let's get an Apple Music subscription going. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> just like, and I know they always want to say what's hot or what whatever is going on. And I guess, granted, she was asked this song. It's not when someone asked Anne Hathaway what she's listening to. She's like, you know, I'm really loving Taylor Swift and Beyonce. Okay, girl, we get it. <laughs> so um, you've been to Target. But, okay. And yeah. All right. Yeah. Great. <laughs> okay, last category, Emily Blunt, Danielle Brooks, Jodie Foster, Julianne Moore, Rosamund Pike, Divine Joy Randolph for Best Supporting Actress. Baby, nobody but Danielle Brooks needs show up. I think I would vote Danielle, but I am okay with the Divine Oscar win, and it seems like we're shaping up to head that way. She's won everything so far. Uh, a mm-hmm. good role, sort of like... Um, a standard supporting role in a movie where it's like she has an emotional backstory, but she ends up being won over by the the leads of this and they end up having a camaraderie. Anyway, but she is a great actress. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh those are the globes. And we're ready to officially start the show. Okay. Um, our guest this week is Crystal Joy Brown, who is delighting audiences and in Juan's words, rallying up the gaze. In Merrily We Roll Along, currently on Broadway, we're going to chat with her. Uh, and then our topics this week, we're going back to Gag City one more time to talk about Pink Friday 2. And also the release of Tate McRae's sophomore album. Um, is she a potential mother? Right. We'll find out. Uh, and then... Juan and I uh, have a theater segment. We're going to talk about shows that we've seen um, this season uh, that we would suggest that you go see uh, and chat just a bit, too, about um, our favorite shows that we've seen um, in New York this year. I hope you guys wear comedy and tragedy masks and have a gay old time. Two gays talking theater in Midtown. It's not been done. Right. (laughs) Good luck to you both. All right, we will be right back with more Keep It. A quick reminder that if you want to get your Cricket merch to arrive in time for the holidays, make sure to order by today. Head to Cricket.com slash store to shop now and find a planner for that one anxious person in your life. So this week, we took a musical journey. We took a trip that started in Canada with new pop girly Tate McRae. Then we eased on down the road to the wonderful land of Gag City. Oh. Because <laughs> Pink Friday 2 finally dropped. Um, let's talk about Tate first, because I think this will be the easiest. It's There's not as much to chew on. It's It's really just a pop album. I think that she has really been delivering... A lot of great performances. She just performed at 
uh, G-A-Y at Heaven in London, which I think is kind of inspired. She's already got the U.S. gays chatting about her, so why not get those um, blimey Brits? Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, those blokes um, chatting about her album, and, you know, it's going to go viral online anyway. So um, what do we all think about Think Later? Think now and let me know what you think. I, I will say first, <laughs> something about her in general is just taking a minute to grow on me in terms of like mm. even remembering the songs. Like I keep he, knowing she did a song called Greedy and I'm like, how does it go? So then I put it out again. I'm like, okay, I do like the song. I think there's also something mm. about her vocally that doesn't demand a lot of attention. I'm not saying she's not a good singer, but the like garbled baby voice thing is a little bit like mm. in the pocket of how mm. everybody sounds. And so I'm sort of yes. waiting for a breakout identity moment from her. Now, I would say the same thing about people like Ava Max, who is like my number one listen of the year. That said, I feel like mm-hmm. her songs go a little harder, have like more of like a thumping dance mom- uh, uh, momentum. And so I'm likelier to put yeah. those on, say, in the car. Mm, Tate is on Gerber Records. Yes. So, you know, <laughs> it, it makes sense. Juan, what do you think? <laughs> The more I listen to it, the more I realize I am absolutely fine with it. There's just this, uns- <laughs> like, there's this hurdle I can't jump where I just feel like I have, I as a quote unquote grown man, have no business listening to this. Something about mm. it is just, uh, I should, this is not for me. And, you know, I'm, I'm Carly Ray Jepsen, truther does not begin to cover it. So this absolutely is for me. Something well, about it. Carly's for old gay men, okay? The young. I don't at think heart. I, I, had, I didn't see nobody Gen Z at that concert. No, no. no you really have will. to be exactly thirty. You have to be a, a, a Barry's Silver member, and you have to be thirty-seven <laughs> in order to go to the curl. She. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, look, look. Talk about Barry's. A lot of the songs on this album <laughs> sound like what they play when they blow out the candle at Soul Cycle, and you're supposed to be inspired by God or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. It, it has a sort of um. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. There's just this this discarded Ariana vibe that I can't really let go of mm-hmm. all over. This I never album. thought to compare her to her, but that that does make sense. Again, I cut my hair and X's. I mean, even the song title "Greedy." I don't know. A lot of it. Eh. Also, here's the thing about the song "X's." Does X's rhyme with necklace? I think I disagree. I don't know that I wish she did that. <laughs> I saw a very stupid tweet today, and I'm pretty sure it was just from some faggot trolling um, for um, you know. Um, interactions or replies they're probably they probably have a hidden blue check or something but it was confused about the line uh change my mind up like origami or whatever and it's like that that's one of the easiest lines no origami it's very basic <laughs> you, you are folding papers like, it's a lot of changing you know, going on yeah i love that game by the way not really a game it's just game? a japanese art of paper folding but okay yeah but when you do oh, I origami into the, whole, the yeah the the, the, the fortune up. cookie yeah mm-hmm. the fortune cookie and you like yeah. open a flap and it's like number two and it says you're gay or whatever I don't know what it says <laughs> that was just you yeah right damn it yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, you know okay, I'll say this though greedy does have this sort of like say it right quality of like things have slowed down and I am in love with the club uh, yeah she's she's not giving like sad girl bops which is which is nice it's not boy genius. It's not, it's, 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 it's not, I'm not slitting my wrist here. It is, it is lower tempo, very say it right, very that kind of 2000s pop where it's mid tempo, it's a little sexy. You can still hear it in the club maybe, but it's not, you know, 
It's not. It's not a. It's danger didn't produce this. You know, it's 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 Britney, but it's not giving blackout. I would say yeah. in sentiment, it's a lot of Olivia Rodrigo too. You know, kind of like mm. breakupy vibes, but I'm still hot. Going on, yeah, sure. We're still recovering from Alana Del Rey's debut in the pop scene. You know, a lot of people are always talking about the 2000s and when we had, you know, banger pop music. And I think once Lana Del Rey hit the scene, things really sort of shifted. And all of the girls are giving, all the pop girls are really still giving you that kind of slowed down vibe. Moaning that really from the works crypt. For yes, Lana, moaning from the crypt. <laughs> um, you know, but everyone can't be um, that stitched up bitch from Nightmare Before Christmas, okay? <laughs> no, like, and you Lana know what? Del Rey back, can. back to the Golden Globes, I need this to end because I need Dua, not because I love her Barbie song all that much, but I need just fun movie songs to win awards again instead of just this sad shit. Right. So yeah, I, what I, I was rooting, made for... I will for, be rooting for the Dua Oscar here. What I was made for is a gorgeous song. Billy sings it beautifully, but... Damn, does every song that's winning an Oscar have to be like a slow, sad ballad again? Mm. Also, like, apparently, remember when, like, remember Against All Odds? Remember Flashdance? Yeah, right. Give me that last dance from Thank God It's Friday. Yeah. That's what used to yeah. be a movie song, right? Also, did you know that Billie Eilish would have, I mean, this isn't that surprising. She could be this, the youngest person to win two Oscars. There's only two actors who've won Oscars before the age of 30. It's Jodie Foster and Louise Reiner. Look up the 1930s. But, Billy, I, I just Shirley know. Temple ain't getting none I, you would, for her good ship lollipopping. <laughs> good ship lollipop. That's her, that's that's what she calls it when she performs at Gag City, I guess. Okay, <laughs> that's a residency. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of Billy Eilish, uh, I should have done a keep it to Billy Eilish, by the way. But <laughs> I'm I'm going to stay out of women's business. Uh-huh. Uh, I will just say that if you're going to give an interview with a magazine and talk about being attracted to women and being queer, um, and then someone follows it up with you on a carpet, it might be uncomfortable and you might not have wanted to specifically talk about it, but it is not outing you. And right. so to send people after the journalist who brought that up, um, your fa- send your fans after them is very silly. But also, she's young, so I'm not going to, you know, attack her for that. But I'm just saying it's it's not outing. And I felt like I felt the, who I was really mad at was adult journalists um, feeding into that. She has that Elle Fanning thing uh, of, are you still 20? Jesus Christ. Why does time work for the rest of us? I don't understand. Yeah. The same age as Tate McRae. Right. God. Crazy. Crazy. Um, that tall giant. She Tate McRae is Lily. Like, if you told me she was from that movie, The Tall Girl, I would believe <laughs> you. <laughs> oh, her, Tate McRae. Yeah. Face it, you're the tall girl. Um, speaking of Billie Eilish, though, she is on Pink Friday yes. too. Which, first of all, Nikki is a liar. <laughs> I, I, Nikki Minaj, I am full barb. Juan knows. We were just at Julius on Sunday uh, singing along to Nikki songs because some barb put like songs from Roman Reloaded and oh Pink Friday on the jukebox. Some twink <laughs> spent $35 playing Nicki Minaj deep cuts at Julius. And I was like, you know 
the ghosts of the Mattachine Society were not having the hack. <laughs> they were putting their hands over their cuffs. They were pissed. <laughs> Somebody blew a whole iTunes card on that. Okay. <laughs> but remember when Nikki was promoting the album and she said, the first song features Billie Eilish. Well, Phineas produced the first song, but it is really just a sample of when the party's over. Yeah. Billy was not in the studio. Do we think Nikki also thinks Cindy Lauper herself is on this album? <laughs> because Probably. of that sample? Probably. Which, okay. Pig Friday 2, I'm going to come out and say, I like it. I'm, I'm in the I, I like, like it community. Example. I think it was, it's good. Yeah. It's, it's, you know what the problem is? It's a confirmation of her talents as opposed to a great leap forward. And I think the girl wants mm. a great leap forward. Mm. Yeah, that's that's truly it for me. I would say that I think that there have been bigger statements from her. I think the Pink, Pink Print is very massive in terms of just a rap album. Yeah. And I'm a Queen fan. But I feel like when you're going to be a Sagittarius and tell everyone that this is the greatest album ever and you've recorded the best songs of your career, then that is what I want to hear. And... The album itself is, you're right, it's a confirmation that Nikki is amazing. I mean, there's Hilarious great songs on it. Yeah. There are great fucking lyrics on it. I really started loving it more once I was sitting down listening to it and looking at the actual lyrics for the songs and seeing her wordplay. But I don't know, like my one of my favorite lines is on this song, R&B, um, which has someone called Tate Gobang on it. Uh, who sounds a lot like Chris Brown, and I feel like she just was replacing Chris Brown with him. And then Lil Wayne delivers a ho-hum rap uh, that could have been from any of his old songs, but on it, she is so funny. I mean, the line, um, he was kissing on my thigh and my breast, he two-pieced it. That is funny. Hilarious. And that is like her being so funny uh, and so witty but the rest of the song around it is so ho-hum. So it's like you're giving us a lot of bits and pieces of the Nikki we love, but it's not all matching up to a massive, amazing product. Not that she's ever had a full cohesive album before, but 22 tracks, girl, this is so long. And I she's adding more to it. I would disagree. I mean, look, yeah, I think 22 tracks is way too much. And I think sitting down and just, you know, taking the bits and the good bits and pieces of each one and go, like, you know, assembling them into a solid like 16 is better. But looking back at Pink Friday, that had what, 19 tracks? And I feel like that is, I would say no skips because I'm in, this is my I mean, it does have no scripts. It does have no skips. But God damn, that was a good album and it had something to say. Why did she call this Pink Friday 2? Is my main question. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. It should just be a total. It should have been called Gag City. I mean, that's the thing we all fucking true left into. <laughs> I feel like she regrets it, and we might just wake up one day and our Spotify's have all changed. Yes, <laughs> I don't actually see what the statement is here either. The statement just seems to be, "I'm still the best. Yeah. Uh, no one's better than me." We already know that. What else is going on? I love the first track where she's talking about finding out um, how her father died, uh, where she's talking about having her baby. I think that there's a lot to be said about being an older woman in rap and having being a mother now and sort of having something else to say, you know? I, I compare her a bit to Jay-Z because he's one of my favorite fucking rappers, and I think that over time, Jay-Z also had to acknowledge, and he said it in interviews, that 
he wasn't rapping about the same shit anymore because he was getting older and that wasn't his life anymore, you know? Uh, it, I was thinking a lot about that with uh, one of my favorite songs on the album, Beep Beep, mm. which she released a version with 50 Cent on it. And 50 Cent has a fine verse on it. But it was also reminding me that 50 Cent has not released an album since that awful 2014 album, Animal Control. Uh, and his best work is before that because when I think about it, yeah, what would 50 Cent be rapping about now? Being in the boardroom, producing power, producing <laughs> power 17. Yeah, right. Um, Vitamin water. Book of Ezekiel yeah. bread. <laughs> also, uh, I would have never said that I needed to hear a chilled out Nicki Minaj, but I really like Let Me Calm Down on this album. <laughs> like, I'm really like, it, like sort of warms you up to it a slower is good, version. And I'm not a J. Cole fan. Yeah. Um, but also, I've seen online people sort of dogging this album by saying, or sorry, dogging the response to this album by saying, oh, gays expected a pop album when it's a fucking rapper. But I think the genius of Nicki Minaj is she routinely plays the part of just rapper while mixing in the occasional really ingratiating pop hook. And I just think you need that marriage a little bit more on a Nicki Minaj album. We were expecting it because she called it Pink Friday. Right. And the first Pink Friday is a pop rap album. It's both. I went immediately back to Pink Friday and I was like, you know what? Some of these songs sound corny even though I fucking love every single one of them. But it's like, this was a project. This was her saying, how could I just blow pop straight into rap and have it work? It was the girliest, pinkest, you know, like, it was so delicious and it was so poppy and pink and theater kid. And what is this one exactly? And also, by the way, I think you need Corny sometimes to get the repeat yeah. listens. Like, I'm just, I'm so sorry to bring up this name. But when 1989 came out and the first thing you hear mm. is fucking Shake It Off. It's like, do I, it will bring me to murder if I ever hear that song again. But there's something <laughs> about the the hook and like how it's just like that undeniable catchy thing that just makes you go back to the album and knows there's something there for you that you that's already in your brain that's already lodged itself there and i feel like there's lots of stuff on this album that takes three or four listens to settle yeah mm -hmm. i mean i actually disagree with lewis i think i i love a mellow out nikki i'm an unpopular ganja burns fan off of queen but i remember she tweeted i don't know back in july when she was like album drops this week she had tweeted that the ideal way to listen to this is like in the bathtub with a blunt or something I would love that, but this was just giving like Xanax in 2015. Not exactly I'm lighting up here. I listened to this and loved it the most when I walked to uh, the Flatiron Trader Joe's and walked back. That's what she was going for, Meaning I'm sure. What? Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I was, I was, it was upbeat in the beginning, you know, with the pop hits. And then when we got to the slower stuff, I was looking around the gro the grocery store and oh, then the when it was upbeat then you know once I was getting the Cindy Lauper sample the um the junior sample with everybody you know the sample of move your feet um then I was you know walking back home with my groceries wow this so, is music to pick out sliced mango too I'm sure that's what she intended <laughs> <laughs> that that is what the Cindy Lauper sample is covered uh, giving and I do think oh my god the fucking heart of glass sample is unforgivable yeah that I would describe as like a failed experiment basically even though I feel like heart of glass should be sampled way more often obviously that's the reason we have work it by Missy Elliott which is a heart I think that we also just need more nasty beats from her. I mean, mm. working with Diplo again, but when you think about Pink Friday, when you think about um, songs like Did It On Them, right? right? You know, like the, the beats just sound weird. And yeah. I want Nicki rapping over a weird, interesting beat instead of Nicki rapping over a song that I've heard on 
um, TikTok, you know, the, the TikTok or the the oldie station when I was growing up, <laughs> you know, like she should be beyond this. She should be beyond the sampling. And I'm not saying that sampling is uh, there's been so much fucking debate about sample. Renaissance had samples. And I'm like, yeah, OK, but you can barely tell what some of the samples are on that. Right. I just want I just don't want to hear Cindy Lauper singing the whole entirety of Girls Just Want to Have Fun in the background because I'm also sick of that fucking song. I hate and that fucking song. I'm just, I, I, just want... I had my time with Girls Just Want to Have Fun. I simply am done with it. Right. You know, what What about um, Shibat, you know? Yeah. Or, um... Hold My Heart uh, All the Way that, to China, that, that please. Goonie, that, yeah. That Goonies song. Uh, all Through the Night, which Nikki, is a cover. tap into your theater rooms mm-hmm. and do a Kinky Boots sample. Yes, yes. Okay. How about a Tony-winning female uh, composer, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> Put Jake Shears on. <laughs> I'd be interesting to hear that marriage. Honestly, Jake Shears, great collabo with Azalea. Shady Love. I don't know that I know that. Oh, my, oh, Shady Love, which was on the album with Let's Have a Kiki. Uh, it was originally supposed to be produced. With, I think Azalea wrote, produced on it, but it's it's not ultimately credited. When you go and listen to it, you can tell Azalea's influence and maybe hear a bit of the vocals. Oh, she sure. Shady Love. Uncredited vocals. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uncredited vocals. Azealia Banks. And it sounds good. My last thing I want to say about Nikki is Taylor and Beyonce dominated the year. And they had Renaissance and Eras, yes. But they they also were sort of just on tour, so we saw them all the time. But also they made these big public appearances on red carpets, right? And everything that we're seeing and hearing about Nikki right now is coming from her Calabas is home, <laughs> which I do not think she's left. I'm wondering if um, an old witch uh, gave her an apple yeah. or something. She's in a turret. Or if her mother like, like, like locked her up in a tower or something. Nikki, leave the house. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Sachin told you to get back. In, you need to get back in the studio. Okay, but now you need to get back in the streets. Okay? Because you're, you're giving Phantom of the Opera. You're giving Dracula. Leave the crypt. And then, then I feel like Nikki will have something else to rap about. Like she yeah. needs to be in the streets, interacting with people again, and that will sort of re-inspire her. Uh, I think she's plenty inspired. Has plenty to rap about, but we just need more, more of that. And honestly, people talking about like the beefs on the album and who she's referencing. Like, give us more of that, mm. but give us new beefs. You know? Yeah. Don't be a super freaky. One of my favorite lines, by the right. way. Uh, stay in your Tory Lane, bitch. I'm not Iggy. <laughs> I cackled, but also, but again, that takes you right back to 2015. You know what I mean? Like, wow, yeah. like an Iggy Even before that. She's, yeah. a, she's a great right. cipher rapper. Like, beam me up, Scotty. Like her Barbie World unofficial mixtape. Like, give me more of that. You know, Girl, just, like, dirty. Beam me raps. up, Scotty. Still, still my favorite. Oh, um, truly. But that's the other thing about Iggy. I'm not saying. I'm not discrediting her for having beefs with people or, you know, naming people because God knows I love the, you know, the Jay-Z and Nas's vintage beef, you know, ether and um, that shit. But I will just say that we haven't heard from Iggy since like 2015, as you said, Lewis. So it's a great line and I cackled and I love it, but Think about if you want to be the person raising um, Iggy's Google alerts. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? You're platforming like, her in a way. You know what I mean? She's yeah. Ha- yeah. You are, okay? You're Z-Way interviewing George Santos, yeah. okay? <laughs> <laughs> 
That's going to um, be a make or break moment for Zue. We'll see. She looks sensational in the stills we've seen. But. Girl, yeah, she looks fucking great. Yeah. Uh, and let everybody know you got a Birkin, girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she steal it from Julia Fox. I need to know. <laughs> All right, when we are back, we are joined by Crystal Joy Brown of Merrily We Roll Along. Keep It is brought to you by Viore. Tired of boring workout gear? Well, check out Viore. Viore's versatile and comfy products are designed to look great in and outside the gym, whether you're running, training, or even just weekend lounging. Doing nothing, you look great in Viore. The Women's Performance Jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own. Grab one of the new colors before they sell out, and check out the Women's Daily Legging, which features a high-waist, drawstring tie, and upgraded no-slip fit. For guys, there's the men's core short, the most comfy-lined athletic short out there. Am I wearing one right now? Who's to say? And the men's Sunday performance jogger. Plus, Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint and reducing and offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 onwards. I wear this stuff all the time. I love to work out, and I need to be comfortable while I do it. There's something about the cling of the short on the thigh that is essential for me, and Viore provides it. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash keep it. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash keep it. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash keep it and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Black Stories, Black Truths. It's a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Each episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shimerda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories and Black truths. Black stories haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. And by us, I mean me and Lewis. <laughs> I'm black, you're tan. <laughs> oh, that's extremely generous of you. I look like I belong in Portrait of a Lady, honey. It's like deep white. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Pod Save America is brought to you by Helix Sleep. How long have you had your mattress? For most people, it's probably time for an upgrade, right? Well, Helix has exactly what you need. Everybody is unique and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. Helix has models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. 
Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. Uh, I have a Helix mattress in our guest bedroom. Mm -hmm. Every single person who stays with us says, that bed is so comfortable. Where'd you get it? You know what I say? Where do you say? Helix. I love my Helix mattress. I have a Don Lux. Don Lux. It's very comfortable. So Lux. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Again, that's helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. Our guest today is someone who is taking over Broadway after making her presence known with roles like Diana Ross in Motown and Eliza Schuyler in Hamilton. She's now dropping jaws in the revival of Merrily We Roll Along, giving us a take on Gussie we haven't seen before. Please welcome to Keep It, the mystifying Crystal Joy Brown. Well, I've never been called mystifying. I will receive that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Happy to be here. Big fan of the show. Thank you. Uh, you told us that before, and Lewis and I, of course, were shocked as always. She's lying. It's not like, it just can't be true. It's not Taylor Swift yeah. shocked, <laughs> where she's always shocked that there's like 9,000 people seeing her in a stadium. It's always genuine shock. I'm like, people still listen? So thank oh, you. Oh, yeah. Listening. And I, I mean, even your gift guide last week, I... Got several of those things. I'm into it. <laughs> so. Oh, wow. We can't be actually influencing people. That's disgusting. <laughs> you are. I have the Criterion channel. I mean, Holy I'm trying to keep God. up with okay, you Okay, never mind. <laughs> An acolyte. All right. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I say mystifying because, you know, basically you're, you're misting Jonathan Groff in this. Uh, so <laughs> tell us about working with, Two icons, I guess, Jonathan Groff and Daniel Radcliffe making his return to stage. Oh, man. Both of them are exceptional human beings. Like, they're both actually... Jonathan is actually as sweet and gooey as you have heard. And, like, and Dan is as neurotic as you probably imagine. And that's why we bond so well, <laughs> because we're both crazy perfectionists. Um, but, like, he... They're both really easy. And I thought, because I'm a... I'm a big Harry Potter fan, but like I could not tell Dan that because that would have been very embarrassing. Um, but I was expecting to be so nervous and that they would be so kind of like, I've met Jonathan like around, so I kind of knew him, but I thought maybe Dan would be, it may be intimidating, but not at all. Like we did this downtown in a base, in a basically a basement theater, 199 seats. We had four dressing rooms between 20 people so we were kind of in the trenches, and we get just bonded like that. So they're they're great. They're easy. They're funny. Uh, we have a great time. And I get to call Dan a driven little runt, and I get uh. to scream at, my, at Jonathan as my husband. What's it like working on a show where it has the most devoted small theater crowd, like the merrily, merrily we roll along obsessives, and then a whole other group of people who don't know anything about this show. It feels like there's no in-between. You can't be like, oh, I'm a kind of a casual fan of Merrily We Roll Along. It's either Stan or completely unfamiliar. Oh, man. I mean, it's, it's, I love when people don't know anything about it um, because then they can come in really fresh. But then it's also great to have this, a lot of people who have been obsessed with the show for the last, I mean, it's been around for 42 some odd years and it's become kind of a cult classic and a thing that was like, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. 
Um, so it's always amazing to talk to them and be like, oh, well, somehow, some way you guys are making it work. And then also for the people that I talked to after the show that was like, it took me until 1962 to realize it was going backwards, um, <laughs> which actually happens a lot. Uh, so the one thing I do tell people is like, hey, uh, just know this show goes backwards from 1976 to 1956. Uh, it, but yeah, it, it's it's you want to try to please everybody, but really like we just focused on trying to make the most honest, vulnerable story that we could because you want this, the Sondheim stands are going to be like the purest and whatnot. Um, but that doesn't allow you to have a, a lot of freedom. So it was nice to kind of just let that go and allow us to just play in it and find it for ourselves. I mean, there was a lot of crying in this rehearsal process. There was a lot of like bearing our souls and being really honest because it's about artists in New York City who make sacrifices for their dreams, which I think a lot of us can relate to. So it was therapeutic and uh, cathartic and painful. <laughs> yeah, this is sort of, you know, famously Sondheim's like problem show. You know, I mean, even the stands, I think, will they take pride in sort of loving Sondheim's problem show. You know, no one's cracked it, whatever. What were the conversations like when you were, you know, workshopping this at Theater Workshop? Did you all like sort of chip in? Did Maria Friedman, who's the director and sort of visionary for this, did she come in with her idea set? And, you know, what was, how do you tackle what is known so famously as, as a problem show? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think Maria definitely came in with a strong vision. But what I do appreciate is that we sat, and this is what I love about, about theater, is like we kind of went back to almost like acting school 101, where we sat in a circle and talked about our characters and how each character knew each other. Um, every single person on that stage has a connection to each other in some way. Like every character, even if they're just, even if you think they're just like moving a chair, like, no, 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 they're not. They are connected to the whole story in a major way. Um, and so I loved the ability that Maria gave us within the parameters of kind of, it's very similar to the, like the staging and whatnot is very similar to the, the 2013 um, in London production. So there's a lot of that, but then within it, like we added so much diversity. We added, um, and I think also just like a love, a, an extra layer of depth um, and, and then simplified some things. I think this is a piece that works if people can just be really focused and honest and lean into like what is being said and what is happening because there's not a lot of big sets. There's not a lot of big movements. I mean, we have, um, you know, a curtain that drops, but it's, it's pretty basic. It's very like just actors. You're almost feeling like you're in the living room with us and we're, we're telling you a story. Um, so I think having Maria allow the space for us to, to play and to, to add and to take away from the production and vision that she already had was helpful. Um, and her having a very like strong vision was great, but you always have to like let your artist breathe into it and breathe new life into it. And like, I mean, we're talking about the 1970s to the 1950s and we're, and I'm a, they cast a black Gussie. Um, and that changes things a lot in a story without having to change any of the words or point to it and say, black Gussie. Like it just changes it without even, <laughs> without even um, having to add that. And so I think that was like a really interesting thing to do by adding that layer. Cause then you can even see like more isolation, more division, and then even have an imagination of what it had to be like for a woman of color to be 
successful, famous, going through all the steps to to secure some success and like what she has to do to hold on to it. Yeah, what's so exciting to me is that I was really only familiar with the 1981 um production and so um gussie is so much bigger larger than life in this and there's gussie songs you know where you get to really do a lot more in the show can you tell us a bit about i guess just tackling sondheim in general you know had what was your familiarity with sondheim and his lyrics before and what was your approach to you know singing these songs because i feel like everyone always has a different approach to how do we get into sondheim and make it feel natural in your voice as you're singing it because you know you hear people singing sondheim songs and you're like you put 50 words into um one line <laughs> yeah this is kind of a an interesting piece because it was like right before he went into that like really like patter kind of thing that he that is very very known for um so this was like that bridge of his styles. Um, this this production, this song, the music in this show is kind of different from like an Into the Woods, but there are like Easter eggs of all of that music that kind of tie along. Um, and and of course, we're working with the Sondheim estate. We're working with Maria Friedman, who was best friends with Sondheim. So anytime I'm like, I just want to do a riff here, they're like, uh-uh, no. Or I'm like, oh, sneak it in. Or you know, like just little things here and there that could make it feel um, as it's, you know, true to the period and also um, to give it my own something. Um, and that's what I was thinking of too. I was thinking of like, how would how would uh, Eartha Kitt sing this song? How would Diane Carroll mm-hmm. sing this? Or or um, you know, Diana Ross sing these songs like that. I was thinking of those women of like those performances and, and their tones and even just the way that they speak. Um and and adding that and being like like oddly enough, thinking about it, like you think you have to add so much to this, but you you really don't. It's like you I try to play pay attention to the time that we're in. I try to pay attention to like this the, the music and the lyrics itself, which are strong enough. You know, the thing I think that made this show constantly endure the test of time was the music is actually really beautiful and strong. So, you know, I, I wanted to add some sultriness and a little bit of, you know, riffing here and, and, and high notes and big notes there. And they were actually very, um, they were very okay with it. They, they allowed me to play a bit. Um, but there are moments where they're like, that is a straight tone. Do not do anything. And you breathe on this note and, and it can be very like, uh, strict, but it's also, it's kind of amazing to play with something that is really, really well known. And for people to, to be able to come to it and say, okay, you, you made it your own, but you didn't like distort what my vision of it is, which is, is I hope what's happening. Now, it's interesting that you brought up (laughs) Diana Ross, who you've of course played in Motown. Is that like just a character you can immediately draw from? Is she like on the tip of your tongue at all times? Like somebody who's always yes. just kind of there for you? Like, I'm sure you have it down to like a science the way, I don't know, Eddie Redmayne had Stephen Hawking down or something. <laughs> I think it took me like two, yeah. I, think that it, I know, why did I choose that? <laughs> Poor you, sorry. Yeah. yeah, I guess he's still trying to shake that. I don't, I, look, I, <laughs> I, I, I did have like Diana face for like, <laughs> I, I did have Me too, for like years yep. you know that smile like the 
the kind of yes. like just like the, <laughs> the shoulders and the eyes like she uh, there is you do lean into that when people have such strong mannerisms um but yeah I, I just when I was getting when I got that role all I did was just start watching every YouTube that there was of her being interviewed because I wanted to see how she walked how she talked how she moved um and then the things that she said that weren't you know um always just obvious in her performances um uh, and so that was like important to me. And so now I, I do feel like I got to kind of know her in a very different way and try to inhabit um, kind of what she did. But it's always you try to draw the essence of someone or something. And then especially when you're playing someone who really exists um, and still exists, uh, <laughs> you want to just kind of be like, I am, I'm, I'm trying to give you the essence of who they are to the best of my ability. And, and and playing her was fabulous. I mean, those Bob Mackie dresses, like in Motown, I had 20 costumes. I had 12 wigs. It was always amazing and crazy. And it was just like a big exploration of, of black excellence and, and beauty. And it was it was really fun. So in, in doing Diana Ross, is that when you learned how to rile up the gays? Because let me tell you, every day, someone I know on Instagram goes to see Merrily and they are just like so excited to see at Crystal Joy Brown, like, you could not realize that Jonathan Groff and Radcliffe are in the mm. show. It's like you are the at in everybody's stories right now. I I did not know that. And I mean, I am always Check your trying. mentions. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, actually. Let's just leave that one to mystery. Yeah. It's like that is my goal to rile up the gays. They rile me up. So like, you know, um, that is the goal. If I can hear a gay gasp when I do, when the, when the, when the, the curtain drops, that's all I need. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, it. it is really fun, especially this character is completely polarizing or could be, you know, and, and every article that's come out, most of them are like, not just a villain, not just a diva. And so it's so easy to write Gussie off as this like, you know, ambitious uh, social climber that's just like wanting, uh, that says all kinds of ridiculous things like, oh my God, I'm going to open my veins or <laughs> things like that. Um, but like, uh, but she, I wanted to give her depth and humanity and also like playing playing a diva as a black woman can become so one note and stereotypical. So I had to make sure that I wasn't going to fall into, and I'm always trying to make sure I'm not falling into the pitfalls of that stereotype because She's a person who has to put on a million different masks. She has to keep shape shifting in these different um, scenarios where she is the only one. Um, so I find that to be interesting. And I think like something that all marginalized people can relate to with Gussie is that the shape shifting, the masking, the presenting, like be palatable, be, be someone who people want to um, or believe that they can profit off of or hold on to and, and, and elevate them. So I think that that's something that that probably... Um, the gays are, are, are seeing and recognizing and like also who doesn't like a sparkly gown and um, feathers. <laughs> <You> <laughs> now, do you have a dream role you have not done yet? I always ask this of Broadway people because you can't help if you're a, a Broadway type singer growing up, the same shows get brought back again and again. So you must inevitably think, oh, you know, this will roll along back to me and I will get to do this part. Do you have one in particular? Oh, gosh. I don't know if this is cliche, but honestly, I love, I've, I've replaced in three Broadway shows, which is great. Um, and this doing a revival is amazing. But to be completely honest, I, I want to do things that like I completely get to start and stamp for myself. Um, 
it's always great to like revisit things, but I think I got to do like my dream role, which was Mimi. Like Rent was the, the, the show that got me into musical theater and made me be like, oh my gosh, like New York City, uh, diversity, <laughs> like these, these people living the artist, artist dream in New York. And I got to play Mimi. That was my first job ever. And then I was like, well, it's downhill from here. No, <laughs> so from that moment. <laughs> so I think now like my main goal is like just to create new stuff and to, to bring more people to the theater and to bring more stories um, and more humanity uh, to the theater. Uh, yeah. I can't think of like, Okay, give us a movie then, because it is Broadway, which also means they're going to adapt everything that we've ever seen in theaters <laughs> and put it on Broadway. Yeah. So what's a movie role where you're like, I want to be that girl, and you're, you're hoping someone adapts it? Because people are listening. Okay, this is, okay, this is going to meld all the things that we talked about <laughs> earlier. Mm-hmm. But because I've been watching Criterion, and there's a Parker Posey, like, Oh, fuck uh, yeah. Yeah, and I love, mm-hmm. love, love Parker Posey. Uh, and I don't. I hope I haven't aged out of this, but I would Party Girl, the musical. It is just an unbelievable mm. movie, Party Girl. Mm-hmm. If people haven't Party seen Girl. it, first of all, it's extremely short, so you're not wasting any time watching this movie. It is banger. It's a one act. Banger honey. It's a one act. Yes. <laughs> it's it's so watchable. It's one of the great performances. It should be regarded equally as much as we we love Alicia Silverstone and Clueless. It's from the same exact time, and it's as good. People need to be watching. It's really great. It's really great. And I think I, I was watching it and I was like, oh, this Because I'm always for some reason. I always go into adaptation land. I think because I did Big Fish. I did Leap of Faith. Like, uh, you know, I've done these adaptations uh, to musicals. So I, I did. I was like, what if like Fiona Apple music could be <laughs> the part of part? I'm always trying to figure out what Fiona Apple musical would be. <laughs> so, wow. Like maybe. <laughs> that sounds great. Let's get her on the great way way. <laughs> Well, it could be, it could be wow. site, site, site specific in some warehouse somewhere. I mean, <laughs> it really could be. There could be a lot going on, a lot of angst. Um, so I think that would be a cool one. Um, I, I feel like Cool Runnings, the musical. <laughs> wow, <laughs> please the best, the best of Disney nineteen ninety three. I really just said that for Ira. <laughs> <laughs> You're really trying to rile up the games now. <laughs> The Disney games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. As if they needed Rylan, God help us. Anyway. I, I'm excited for all the new stuff that's coming out. Like, I, I love, I actually, like, I really enjoyed Back to the Future. I don't know if you guys saw it on Broadway. It's fun. <laughs> I read. Just, like, <laughs> <laughs> I did not, you know what? I did that was. <laughs> I mean, talk about curtains. I, I did enjoy the 45-minute, you know, technical difficulties curtain that I got stuck with. I, I, yes, I, get back to I the did show. feel like I was in a ride, like a real, real ride um, mm. in the theater. But, but yeah, I, I want all this new stuff that's coming out next season is going to be really exciting. You know, it's easy to kind of do the adaptations. I think we're really scared because it's commercial theater. Like, people, people don't even know that it costs so much money to put the show on every every week. You know, we might make 1.8 million, but it costs about a million to do a week. Um, so it's, it's crazy. People don't understand like where that goes, but there's so many people we employ. There's so much, um, that goes in and out. So people want to bet on us on something safe. Um, but I hope theater is going to take more risks. I think, I think we can do it. Mm. Well, thank you so much for being here, Crystal. Um, I will, I will be, 
first in line to see you in Cool Runnings. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but I want to be on the bobsled team. The, Although the bo- you do not want to hear my Jamaican accent. I'm, <laughs> you don't want to hear mine. Ac- <laughs> you try it. No, I do. I love all your accents. Come on, give it to us. Really oh, quick. I, are you sure? A bit. I can leave. Yeah. Just... <laughs> Uh, where's your bobsled team from? Jamaica. Oh, wow. You know what? That's it. (laughs) You're hired. (laughs) For what? You don't want to know. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town. It was also pretty boring, by the way. To The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and made to compete in a beauty pageant. Amazing to watch, by the way. On each episode of Wondry's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently, The Big Flop looked at The Swan, a competition for women who were hoping to transform their physical appearance. The problem? The women were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then they were ranked by a panel of judges. And that's just after Truman Capote was done with them. Unsurprisingly, it led to trauma for the contestants and terrible reviews. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. So many teenagers waiting to be adopted from foster care feel like their lives are over. They've given up hope of having a permanent home and are terrified of aging out with no support system. Right now, more than 113,000 children are waiting to be adopted in the U.S., The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is dedicated to finding them the right family before it's too late. Learn how you can help at DaveThomasFoundation.org slash learn more. All right, Lewis is on sabbatical, but he'll be back in the Keep It segment. But since we are blessed with an acclaimed theater critic, acclaimed We'll get into that. We decided to take this time to go over the current season of Broadway and off-Broadway shows. Hi, Juan. Thank you for the acclaim. Um, I'm probably certainly the, the, the theater critic with the most active Twitter beefs. That's that's the thing I'll take, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I have seen you with a Twitter beef in person. We're not going to get into it. We really but... don't have to. <laughs> Suffice it to say that I was attacked outside a theater one time and also attacked at a Carly Rae Jepsen concert another time. I just have to say that if you think that theater is not alive and well in New York, I just have to tell you, you have not lived until you were seeing a show with a friend of yours in Brooklyn and then you step outside and someone has beef with him. So, girl, you're doing it. 
It's it's yeah. The drama is on stage, off stage, on the page, on the sites. Yeah, my lord. <laughs> well, let's talk about the stage, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, things that are playing now that we are really enjoying. Things that are playing now that we're not enjoying. I would say currently. It closes on the 17th, so good luck seeing this show. But <laughs> Stereophonic Off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons is my favorite fucking show of the year. I absolutely agree, and I come bearing good news with the asterisk that it is a rumor, you know, a rumor, and italics, but I, I hear that it's transferring to Broadway in the spring. Everybody, this okay. fucking play by David Ajmi with music by Will Butler from Arcade Fire is so good. Don't go into it thinking it's a musical because there are maybe like six minutes of music in the entire three-hour play. But my God, I mean, I you saw there's it more than that. There's like, okay, fine, there's, like fine. There's, there's like half an hour of music, perhaps, including like the tune-ups and everything. So it's usually <laughs> the tune-ups. The, girl, you're lying to these people. But I will <laughs> say the play is about a up-and-coming rock band. They're recording their second album. They're sort of on the cusp of superstardom in 1976. And what starts out as a recording session that's supposed to last a month rolls out to basically a year. It is giving, obviously, Fleetwood Mac recording rumors. Mm. And it is... It's good. It's just the... I don't remember the last time I'd seen a long play like this that wasn't about some message Mm. or really trying to teach you something and it's really people reviewing it as this is important it's just fun yeah it's a good play it's fun the characters are good the character there's there's um each one feels like an individual each one has great interactions with everyone else it feels like you're watching real people on stage yeah and it just takes you so by surprise i mean i love a play that slows you down you know the first 20 minutes you're like what are we doing here and then you just find yourself listening and seeing everything and the way this band which of course like the male members and the female members are like in all kinds of you know combinations of like fucking dating living together whatever it, you just get so engrossed and the first act is truly like two hours and by the time the curtain came, like you know came down on that whatever i was like this cannot end please uh we need to talk about sarah pigeon an actor i did not know but she mm. sort of slowly rises as the lead and the emotional center of Stereophonic. I did not see Tiny Beautiful Things. I guess she was sort of like young Catherine Hahn on that. But, I mean, look, if this goes to Broadway and she does not win the Tony for Best Actress, I will be pissed. I did not see Tiny Beautiful Things. I was confused at first as to whether or not I'd seen Tiny Beautiful Things because there was that period where every show sort of has the same title. Little fires, beautiful, big little, yeah. Dark, Everything ugly everywhere. things. There was that ballet show that was on Netflix that was truly horrible that I'm so sad did not get a second season. Bunheads. Uh, not that one, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like Bunheads. Oh, I had some moments. Yeah, I'm anti-Bunheads. I'm sorry. Um, anyway, Sarah Pidgeot is great. Julietta Cadfield is really great. I loved her in Succession. I love her on this. Everything about this is really good. The set is great. Stunning. It's like this like very 70s, you know, North California shag carpet moment. You have the the, the recording, you know, like the what's it called? The, the recording the technical booth? side. The, the, no, because the booth is, is Oh, is past. The, the soundboard. You have the soundboard first, and then they perform behind uh, you know the glass, and it's all live. It sounds fucking incredible. I also hear 
rumored that you know an EP is on the way because there are like five or six. I songs need it. And I need amazing. it. I need it. And I need I need extra songs too. Yeah, no, flesh this out. Honestly, give us a mini series after the Broadway run because I, oh my god, I was so tapped in. Yeah, Daisy Jones and the Six found dead. All right, yeah. and also did the amazing because like nothing will put me off seeing something more than. 70s rock band hits bumps on the road to success like ugh, this is not that. oh that that makes me hard oh i don't know you didn't, <laughs> see, you didn't see the almost famous musical last season my god oh no i had the good sense to skip that <laughs> well it's being workshopped at the o'neill center which is rare for a show by established artists that has since premiered on broadway but it's going back to the o'neill center to be workshopped <laughs> almost <laughs> long this journey into getting this play fucking right alright well we talked about a play that we loved and now we're going to talk about Spain which is off Broadway at second stage this is a very bad play uh, I it's, it's troubling to me though because I wanted to love it and there are yeah. parts of it that I really do love but you, you it's sort of this it's it's set in 1936, or is it? Uh, and <laughs> it's about a pair of filmmakers who have landed their or next big they? project. <laughs> a sweeping Spanish Civil War film with the potential to change American hearts and minds, but it's bankrolled by the KGB. Ernest Hemingway is a character in it. <laughs> I thought it started out fun. It is... It's like a spy caper. It's about the film industry. It's about Hemingway and the 1930s and these two people, um, Andrew Burnap and Marin Ireland. Um, They're sort of I, these like Greenwich Village, you know, leftists, yeah. whatever artist people. I love them. Okay. Marin, yeah. first of all, is amazing in Eileen. That uh, psychotic, that psychotic game movie uh, that Anne Hathaway is in, which you have to go and see Eileen. It's psychotic. Um, <laughs> yeah, bring 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 whippets to the theater too. Because you cannot believe where that movie ends up. But this place starts out really fun, and then it sort of devolves into what am I watching here? And it's funny that the concept of it is these two people have no idea what Spain is. They've never been there, but they're making a movie about Spain. And then you start to wonder if the playwright Jen Silverman has ever been to Spain themselves. Yeah, it's very um, uh, Spain, uh, uh, wine, um, Hemingway, the, uh, the Civil War. Like, there's just all this shit happening. And I think also what went wrong, I guess, in the playwriting process is that like, yeah, like you said, it's these two people who don't know Spain and they're sort of, you know, figuring out how to tell a story about it on the fly. And there are so many levels of who knows what, who's hiding what from whom, and that I think the playwright themselves sort of forgot <laughs> who knows anything. And by the end, I'm just, I, I can't remember the, uh, the last time I was this disengaged from a play by the time it ended. I was angry at the end, <laughs> by the way. I'm all for twists in plays, but the end really sort of upset me. I wasn't so. too pissed because we were two rows behind Jake Hall, and I was just staring at him. Yeah, he had his, he had his, um, he, he had, had a great interested face. <laughs> he was mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, adjusting his glasses in this like sexy big ass puffer jacket I will say that there is a moment where something crazy happens at the play and Jake is looking around <laughs> sort of like is, is, is anyone else getting what's going on and I did not get what was going on uh, and then I loved when we left the theater everyone sort of trying to be near him yeah. as they were exiting um, Jake Gyllenhaal goes to see theater anyway I saw him at Slade play 
I saw him in Sunday in the Park. He's let's get him back on Broadway. I mean, honestly, he's such a great actor. Yeah. Um. All right. So Hell's Kitchen. I have not seen this yet, but it is set in the mid '90s. It's basically Alicia Keys' story. It's an Alicia Keys off-Broadway musical at the Public Theater. Uh, she did the music for it. Um, oh, sorry. I also want to say, going back to Spain quickly, the best part about it is the sound design, which is very intense. And of Spain is is of Spain. The sound design for Spain it's very intense, and it is and matches up with the show not at all. Yeah. But I would love to listen to it at home. <laughs> the production elements are going overtime to, to make up for the fact that really nothing is happening on stage. <laughs> but Hell's Kitchen, let me know about this play with music and lyrics from Alicia Keys and a book yeah. by Christopher Diaz. I really, really liked it. Um, music and lyrics is... I was under the impression that it was a few pre-existing songs and then mostly written, mostly new material. It's not the case. There are like two or three new songs. They are... Fine. They're sort of just like your average bio musical, you know, like mm-hmm. you know, my I want songs, whatever. This so, we get I mean, fallen. They are fallen. Listen, what they do, they address the fact that the songs you expect in the show, like Fallen and Empire State of Mind, that you were mm-hmm. kind of gonna roll an eye at them. So what they do is that they just they they come out of very unexpected places. Uh mm-hmm. they have Shoshana Bean and Brandon Victor Dixon as Alicia's, you know, parents, stand-ins. They are singing the fuck down. Everyone in this show mm. is singing amazing. The lead is this new actor I'd never heard of before. I think this is her professional debut, if I'm not mistaken. Her name is Malaya Joy Moon. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. She has this raspy sort of sexy voice that's not Broadway. My my major thing the past, like, God, I don't know, five years is I need conservatories to be wiped off the face of the earth because they have wiped, <laughs> they have wiped off uh, individuality from from singers from Broadway performers, you know I love to say that like Carol Channing could not get a callback in this day and age. Um, she's great. It's a great show. It's transferring to Broadway. I'm excited. I'm excited with how fast things that are hits downtown are transferring. Mm. Yeah, I really like um, the concept of this, and I'm excited to see it. Um, the public should invite me to their fun musicals instead of always inviting me to a play I don't want to see. They sure should. Um, and well, actually, last, I guess, the, one, the other thing we saw this season together was Pearly Victorious, which I said I want Sarah Pigeon to win Best Actress. If there was one other person who could win it without me being mad, it is Kara Young, who is truly giving you Lucille Ball meets, like, I don't know. She is such a star. Speaking of Kara Young, I just saw Kara in a reading uh, a workshop reading of this new play, Table 17, by mm. Douglas Lyons, who wrote Chicken and Biscuits. I did not love Chicken and Biscuits. I thought it was funny. But yeah. this play, Table 17, is so funny, and it's so moving, and it's really just about a love story between two people over time. Uh, it's it's not backwards, like Merrily We Roll Along or uh-huh. Pinter's Betrayal, but it, it does jump back and forth in time. Carrie Young is just so amazing. Um, I went to see because my friend Michael Rashawn was in it, and he is amazing too. But Carrie Young it just just lit up that room uh, and really sort of elevated everything um, that she said in Table Seventeen. I'm looking forward to seeing that play in its future um, as it continues to get funded and developed. But she and Pearly Victorious was really worth the price of admission, and I want to say go and see Pearly Victorious if you can. Yeah. I think that. 
um, audiences should really see the show. She's amazing. Leslie Odom Jr. is great in it. It was very annoying that it is not a musical. <laughs> you lied to me. I did not <laughs> you lie. You deceived you me. Misheard. You deceived me. I thought it was Pearly. I didn't know Pearly <laughs> Victorious was the one without the music. Okay, but here's the thing. So I, I interviewed um, Leslie and Kara for Vogue, uh, sort of in, in anticipation for opening night. And Pearl, uh, Leslie's been trying to get this show off the road for you know years. And he worked closely with the Aussie Davis estate. So Aussie Davis and Ruby D sort of produced and started in the first production of the play 60-something years ago. This is the first revival, which is kind of crazy. Uh, they mm-hmm. wanted a revival. If a revival was going to come, they wanted the play to come first. So everyone, go see this play so that in five or so years we can get the fucking musical revival. Everyone, if you have not heard uh, Melba Moore, I Got Love, please go see this. Go stream it. Let's give her some hits. And let's get the show back on Broadway. But ultimately, Carrie Young, my God, what a star. Okay. Well, we talked about Merrily We Roll Along already, uh, which is on Broadway. You don't, we don't need to urge people to go see Merrily We Roll Along. That show is selling out. Yeah. Yeah. So the Sondheim girls are seeing it. The Harry Potter girls are seeing it. Crystal Joy Brown's gaggle of homos is seeing it. But speaking of Merrily We Roll Along, here we are, which is off-Broadway at The Shed. This is the, the lost Sondheim musical. He was working on it before his death. I've heard rumors that Act 2 has no songs in it whatsoever. It starts out with a song that sort of peters out. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> look, the thing, the thing about that is that it makes sense, right? A lot of the show makes sense. Sondheim, you know, was never beating the Brainiac allegations. He sort of wrote himself into a corner. And I think had he been able to have a final say on whether this should be produced or not, he might have said no. I think, so it's based on two films by Luis Buñuel, uh, the Exterminating Angel, which is about sort of a group of rich people who can't leave a dinner. And then The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which is another set of uh, rich people who can never get to dinner. I think it's a cute concept that might have just been left at that. You know, it's like a mm-hmm. riddle. The show writes itself into such a corner. I, it's not ex- exactly enjoyable. The producers and the people behind it are not beating the grave robbing allegations with that one either. That said, it is such a beautiful production. The cast is in fucking carnival. Tracy Bennett um, is doing amazing work. If you're a theater fan, I think you owe it to yourself to go see this. I don't know when else we might get it again. I don't know if there's like and a And I love David recording. Ives. He's great. He doesn't fill in the gaps that might have needed to be filled in. I think it's too respectful of like just leaving what Sondheim did alone. Um, mm. You do have to truck out to the fucking shed out in Hudson Yards, which is the most demoralizing place in human history. Okay, well, uh, I live in the West Village, so it's not that far. Well, you still have to walk about three avenues from the ACE. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. But Speaking of Sondheim and not beating the grave robbing accusations, do we need to give him a break? Bleh, perhaps. Like, because what else? Because Sweeney Todd's on Broadway right now. I'm gagging to see it with um, Sutton Foster in it and Aaron Tevitt. Less so, but I'm really That'll excited to see what Sutton does with Mrs. Lovett. But are we going to put every single Sondheim show on Broadway? Let's or off Broadway. Let's wrap the Sondheim thing up after we get Lashans and Gypsy, and then maybe a Passion production because I haven't seen that ever. And then okay, so you just want to you just want to keep going, bitch. Well, there are great <laughs> fucking shows, but let's just do them quick and easy. You know, like a five month run out, boom. <laughs> um, I would love to, you know, like next year. You know, I would love to see um another a little night music. 
Sure. Because the one I saw was messy. <laughs> hey, look, I liked it. And also bring Follies. <laughs> bring the National Theater Follies here. That was fucking incredible. Yeah, I did miss Assassins, which made me sad. But because um, I've actually never seen that show produced. It's so, fun. It was a fun production. Yeah. Anyway, um, these are some of the shows that are playing. There's a bunch of other shows playing. And there's a bunch of new things really sort of debuting next year. So Juan will be back. Not to be the end of a Marvel movie, but Juan Ramirez will return. And I'm, I'm already <laughs> hinting because I'm wearing, uh, of course, a t-shirt from City Center's COVID-canceled Thoroughly Modern Millie production, a show that the, that the writers themselves have said it is, quote, cursed. But <laughs> I do think we can fix it, and I do think we can get it back on Broadway. So let's make that happen, and I'll come back. Also, one more message. Danny in the Deep Blue Sea, which is playing at the Lucille Lortel Theater. Uh-huh. Why don't I take his $400 fucking dollars? <laughs> I'm not paying $400 to see an 80-minute play. I'm sorry. Nor One is you. down the street <laughs> in that small theater. Rachel just... Bloom was just playing there. Cola Scola's heading there next year. I'm excited for that. I am very excited for Cola Scola's show, but Danny and Deep Blue Sea, Danny and I'm going to keep my money. So there's that. Um, but shout out to Aubrey Plaza and Christopher Abbott. Two He's hot so people. sexy. Yeah, He's they're so both hot. very sexy. And she's giving Stephanie Germanata <sighs> in this. That's kind of the price of admission. Uh, I want to see it. <laughs> but I'm keeping my money. All right, when we're back, Lewis rejoins us for the Keep It segment. And we are back with our favorite segment of the episode, Keep It. One, you are our guest of honor, so you get to go first. Okay, so mine is sort of crumbling before my very eyes because as I am doing this, I'm sort of uh, feverishly reading every online dictionary that exists. But anyway, <clears throat> I have seen, and please, after I say this, everyone who's listening, please look at my Instagram and know that I am young and hip and not someone who carries around like an MLA rule book. <laughs> I have had it with seeing the word mediums everywhere. Oh, sure. Um, I see it in gallery, you know, plaques. I have seen it in... Um, newspapers of of note i have seen it my god truly everywhere but the final straw was hearing it in barbara streisand's memoir which i have to believe that just no one wanted to correct her on that um everyone the plural form of medium is media however something called grammarist.com is telling me that that since it is a latin word and that anglos have been using it for 500 words that anglos have the right to now claim it and say mediums i'm going to say keep it to that the word is media, and artist works across media, and that includes Barbara Streisand. I also just want to say that when, like, th there's always a crop of grammarians who say, well, language evolves, and so, like, you know, eventually this is just going to become correct since, you know, people casually will say the word mediums. I still get to be mad about it. Sorry, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I don't want to hear the word. When I hear mediums, you better be talking about reboots of the Patricia Arquette show, or otherwise there's no excuse for that. Maybe if we're talking about t-shirts. Maybe. That's it. Right. Okay, I thought you were talking about something between tops and bottoms. I'm, oh, I like, sides, I was like, I was sides like, where are, are you popping going? the fuck off about this topic around uh, right now. I do not like the term side. I hate the term it's, side. What, what does it mean? Have it's less like sex, you're, everybody. You're, Jesus Christ. You're, that's yeah. you're tired. It's like, I'm a, I'm a side, like, after I had lunch, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's, come over. Let's oh, talk. you love company? You love, the, you love the musical company? Okay. <laughs> yeah. We're side by side. And what are we doing here? It doesn't I'll, even describe... It doesn't even describe the act of having 
sex without penetration. Side, you're it's you're just side to side. What is this? It's, no, but listen, let's get or y'all get some Europeans on the show because when I went to Europe earlier this year, I have never seen that fucking uh, category used more on Grinder in my whole entire life. So the Europeans really took to it, and maybe I'll get to the bottom of it. I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to, to disrespect anybody's fucking queer journey. But if I see the word side on Grinder, I hear a studio audience groan. I just, <laughs> it's like, oh, we were doing so well, okay. and you want this fucking thing where we're just barely touching. It's like a cir- circus act or something. I don't know. Okay. Combine my keep it. It's mediums and sides. Uh-huh. Other than that, it's uh-huh. going to be a fabulous week. <laughs> Okay, I need you saying I've been here all night and now I'm rocking side to side, okay? (laughs) (laughs) That's the only side I want to hear. Are there other famous side songs? Side by side by side, company. A Sade by your side. There we go, yes. That's comeback Sade. And she's like, guess what I'm going to sound like? Sade. By the way, I heard Soldier of Love at um, Good Room on Saturday. Carrie Mm. Nation played it. That song went off. That is such a sexy song. And also, didn't realize it's really just like a club song. Right, right, right. Because it has a low sort of rumble. You know, it's not like, yeah. it's not a dominating song, but it has the only word we use anymore, vibe. It has a vibe. <laughs> I hope that next year, we finally do get that Sade album that we've been promised. I was going to say, Sade doesn't miss. However, she's only taken two shots. So, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Please come back, <laughs> Helen, which is her name. Yeah. Lewis, yes. what is your keep it this okay, week? Okay, I can't tell if this is niche Twitter or kind of everywhere. I saw uh, John Fugel saying the comic uh, post this, and he seems to be for everybody. So I'm going to say it is beyond niche. <laughs> yeah. AFV replacement hosts. That's yes. exactly right. Daisy Fuentes, come on, keep it. I have, I would love to know what's going on with you. Um Joan Crawford, apparently, once upon a time, according to the internet, wrote this alleged note from Joan Crawford about Betty Davis is circulating online. It says, uh, Bob, dear, I hope by now you have had an opportunity to talk with Betty about her body odor. It is quite the distraction for me working within close proximity to her if she returns, refuses to bathe or wear adequate deodorant. I have found myself gagging on several occasions during this filming fondly. Joan, obviously, we're talking about whatever happened to baby Jane. Guys, of course, this is fucking fake. If this were a real note, we would be like reciting it at holidays, at funerals, whatever. Every gay person in America would have this note fucking memorized. And also, it would have been recited word for word on the show Feud. It would have been Jessica Lange's Emmy clip. Just be responsible about what you share. There's enough real shade coming from Joan Crawford anyway, enough in the real story that we should all be sort of familiar with what's real and what's not. She wouldn't, it just, it upsets me. I felt like the media literacy on this was all awry. There would be an entire documentary series or at least a TikTok series of whatever gay national treasure discovered this note if it were real. Totally. No, there would be an endowed chair at USC devoted (laughs) to testing the legitimacy of this fucking note. No, you both said you were at Julius earlier. This note is given fucking Lee Israel in Can You Ever Forgive Me? (laughs) 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 Sitting there typing. Immediately. Mm. Yeah, right, right. Bob Deere immediately. Exactly. It's too suspicious from the jump. Yes. And and gagging, too, you know? Yes. Well, Joan Crawford could be the, the grand matriarch of, of Gag City for all we fucking That's know. true. That's true. <laughs> she was a good actress about three times altogether. Uh, <gasps> I, ever seen, I just saw the movie Possessed recently. That could have been somebody else. She was nominated for it. Not a great... Okay, movie. Is that, is that early, Joan? Is it's, that early, uh, Joan? It's late 40s. It's it's sort of like okay. a uh, it's a thriller, yeah. As uh. far as the forties go, 
That could have been someone else. Uh, let me think. She's been... Sudden Fear, I think, is her best that's performance. That's 50s, yeah. Uh-huh. That's a, that's a good performance from her. I, I like her in Grand Hotel. I mean, Mildred Pierce is her best, but yes. Yeah, Mildred Pierce, and then there's... um. What, what what's one of my other favorites? I mean, Johnny Guitar, right, uh, oh, which is yeah, the costuming that. alone. I mean, I should be dressed up like that at birthday parties. <laughs> but you know what? Was, is it is it Mercedes McCambridge? It sure is. Like, oh, town she sort of takes that movie. Yes, around. I love Mercedes McCambridge. Uh, she's the Oscar and the winner. women, and of course, oh, the women I love. That's one of her yeah. best roles. Uh, Mercedes McCambridge, rare Oscar winner. Who um, I, I believe her son. When I when I a small murder spree and then blamed his mom for it. Look that up. Like her oh. vocal performance in The Exorcist. <laughs> no, just in general, he said, "Mommy, you were a terrible parent in the note or something." It's really dist- it's disturbing. <gasps> mm. Well, though well, I love Mercedes I guess, McCambridge and All the King's Men, delicious. I guess Mercedes and Lana Turner had a lot to talk That's about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of <laughs> a lot of dubious, yeah, gunslinging. If, to bring children. it back to Johnny Guitar. Yeah. <laughs> Ira, what is your keep it this week? Okay, my keep it this week is we never really dove into Renna 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 Renaissance. Oh, right. But you saw it, Lewis. I did. And I just want to talk a bit about the responses to Renaissance. And my keep it goes to all of the brouhaha. Uh, are surrounding Angelica Jade Bastian's review of Renaissance in Vulture. There's a couple points I want to make. One, I love Angelica Jade Bastian's work, obviously, and she's been a wonderful Keep It um, co-host before. And Betty Davis Stan, I just want to say. Yes. Two, I didn't actually love the review. To be honest, uh, I'm kind of confused that people, there's an uproar about this. I think it's sort of an expected criticism. Moving on. Yeah, I think it's an expected criticism, but I didn't love the particular review. One of the quotes says that Renaissance, a film, demonstrates that black joy isn't inherently radical. In fact, without a sense of materiality, black joy becomes directionless and easy to co-opt by the varied forces of power that are fueled by anti-blackness. Beyonce is an icon who has carefully maintained a sense of accessibility to anyone, anywhere, for any reason. Black musical traditions may have the potential for radicalism, but Beyonce's neutrality demonstrates they aren't inherently that way. More than anything, Renaissance is a testament that Beyonce is a brand that stands for absolutely nothing beyond its own greatness, which I would disagree with, but that is also the great thing about criticism. You're allowed to put out your idea and then people can respond to it. Personally, what I take from Beyonce and her brand and what I have for years takes it beyond it just standing for Beyonce's own greatness. But there is also to be something said about using, you know, Black Panther aesthetics for formation at the Super Bowl. And then are we going to translate that into being a revolutionary? And do we want each piece of art that Beyonce releases after that to be Black Panther standing on a cop car in the formation video, something like that, you know? Or are there other ways to sort of be revolutionary? I feel like me listening to this music in a queer club, listening to it um, with friends, listening to it and having themselves feel better by listening to this music does a lot and it goes a long way. And that is the intent for the album and obviously, there's a lot of issues with, you know, there's that video of people in Israel listening to Break My Soul, uh, and people were angry at that. But I also think that when you are an artist and you put something out into the world, you also no longer have any control how people co-opt and use your music. 
I think that we're in this very weird space where we are demanding everyone be sort of holding themselves accountable for what's going on in the world. And I guess that we have always had sort of black revolutionaries uh, who sort of had to speak out because, you know, it was Jim Crow, right? Uh, And you weren't let in the front door. And uh, they wouldn't let you get to the hospital, you know, if you're Bessie Smith. Um, I don't know I'm talking like this now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hand on my hip. Uh, talking to a southern drawl. Um, but um, it was Bessie Smith, right? The, I mean, the that's hospital, like very, very old. I'm sure it is her, yes. Die, the hospital rumor. Wh- oh, whatever. yeah, yeah. Empress that, of the Blues, uh, yes. Yes, yes. Um, there's a whole play about it. Anyway, I just have to say that I've never thought that Beyonce was a revolutionary. And so the idea that, you know, there's going to be commentary on what's going on in the world um, felt a little bit like we were putting something on the film that I was never expecting to get from it. But with that said, it's one fucking review. It's not stopping people from going to see Renaissance. And I think that everyone needs to chill a little bit. And it was this this whole week was people angry uh, about the Renaissance review. It was Swifties angry that people were making fun of Taylor's quotes in that Time Magazine profile. Which were admittedly hilarious. With her two pop culture references. Yes. <laughs> She's like, I'm just like Lord of the Rings. What? <laughs> <laughs> and also, the photos were awful. They were strange. I would describe them as off-kilter. Yeah. Um, it was It was giving a lot of Carmen Electra in her 1993 debut album. Okay. uh, Finally a good reference for her. But Prince wasn't on set. (laughs) Right. No, no, no. Uh, Okay. I want to say about the uh, Fuhrer about Angelica Jade Bastian. I guess my feeling is it feels to me like Beyonce fans, their whole thing is saying Beyonce exceeds every standard. And then they read this review and they're like, why are you holding her to a standard? It's like, no, you are too. You just think she beats it. Um, yeah. So I just wish people just uh, uh, entertained the argument a little bit more as opposed to trying to reject it wholesale. Like I saw like re- reactions that were like, I can't believe this got past an editor. Oh, shut the fuck up, bitch. Like it's not like she's illiterate or whatever you're implying. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that for me, there are valid criticisms to be had about Beyonce being withholding as an artist or sort of being something for everyone. I mean, but that is a thing that I feel like has always been within her documentaries. We didn't learn anything about her in this. I will also, that's a criticism I have about the movie. Like, th- like she teases, like we're going to get a lot of backstage, like, oh, it's really interesting to watch the, the, the uh, run crew work or whatever. Uh, oh, here's somebody I've known for years who works on this tour. And then you never hear from them again. Like it's sort of just, right. you know, it, it's almost like that should have been a different movie from uh, the Renaissance tour. The blue segment was beautiful. I loved that. And I also loved the parts that showed, you know, how she was crafting the show, it, particularly in the alien superstar moment where the lights, the, where the power had gone out in St. Louis and how she recovered from that. But even if I love this better than Homecoming, I think it's the best we've ever seen of filming her on stage. And just you really feel like you're in the show. I wanted more rehearsal footage. I wanted more. She talked about this had been created for four years. Um, I wanted to hear more about how you created it four years ago. Okay, bitch, you were working on this four years ago. You were thinking about this tour in tandem. I want to learn more about creating an album 
and creating a tour at the same time and then thinking visually about how you're going to present it to totally. your audience. That's what I wanted to because see. Because I would say, still say, like, after you watch this movie, it feels like this entire concept of Renaissance came out of nowhere. When it's, like, very specific yes. and strange. Like, how did we get to an alien place? How did we get to, it's going to look right. like this. Yeah, all these costumes are well elevated from her previous work. And it's like, where did that come from? I will say about this movie, there's so much technical marvel in it that you almost need a different viewing per thing like i watching the movie for the first time could not stop looking at the costumes we could just do one entire viewing devoted to the vocals literally if there was nothing in front of you and you just heard her fucking sing obviously that would be an entertainment triumph on its own um it's a, a ton of ton of movie packed into two hours and 40 minutes yeah i was getting other stuff on a second viewing you know i've only seen it twice so far but Really, I just wanted more behind the scenes. Even the knee stuff for me, obviously there was the Dubai thing, um, but the tapping into her knee surgery, right? Yeah. I wouldn't expect this in a Beyonce made documentary. There's a lot to be said about her being the writer, director, producer, like the sort of auteur presenting her life to people. Um, but the knee stuff was very much like, okay, well, I saw the show in Europe and everyone online is always t joking about how Europe was basically a test run for the tour <laughs> and she was really coming alive in the US, right? We didn't really get any of that in the show. It was sort of, the show's been at this caliber the entire time, which makes sense because she's producing it. But I also think that that's a marvel to get to where we are, you know? So um, those are my sort of main criticisms of it. But um, man, I really enjoyed it. And um, I think that also people just need to get better at taking critiques uh, because the artists are taking them just fine. They're, they're, they're not seeing them. They're not worried about them. And you're getting worked up over someone having a debate about work. And I think it's also just because we aren't getting that much criticism out there in general. It's, you get something from Vulture or Pitchfork, right? Maybe something crazy from Slate, but everyone's not getting paid or commissioned to write on Renaissance, so there's not a bunch of different pieces coming out, you know? I, I just want to say also, though, you have reminded me how much artists have pressed responses to criticisms. Like, give me Lana Del Rey being like, look, you fucking maligned me, bitch, on this fucking album and Powers at the LA Times. I'm coming after you. It would never be this hot. <laughs> she, she would never do it in full breath as I'm doing, but yes. <laughs> yeah. She's vaping too much. No. Mm. Lana Del Rey being too bit you know what she is she's like when that jukebox have when that jukebox hasn't worked in 50 years and someone hits it and finally a voice comes out of it for the first time since 1964 that's what she sounds like to me mm. you know so we have the Fonz to thank for a lot of Del Rey yes uh, at at, <laughs> uh, at Arnold's bar or whatever that is yeah <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you to um, Crystal Joy Brown for being our guest. Thank you to Juan Ramirez for being our guest co-host this week. What a fucking fabulous co-host. What a pleasure. Thank you both. All theaters, yeah. theaters never not dying. So I'll come back <laughs> to say that every single time. Baby, pe people were saying theater was dying when they when they hated Seneca's version of Medea. I'm sure. <laughs> Look at you. What this the fuck is what was we're that? doing? Yeah. <laughs> Seneca? Escalus step from the chorus line to quote what's his face and all about Eve. Uh, Addison DeWitt. Yes. There we go. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. You know, since olden days when a flash of stocking was looked on as something shocking. Okay. <laughs> anyway, we will see you next week uh, for our last episode of the year. Maybe we'll finally get it right. <laughs> yeah. Then we're going to start keeping year seven. Holy shit. What? It's, it's getting Shonda Land up in here. Yeah. <laughs>
We're going to take showtime. over the government. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is giving showtime. This is never going to end. Season 52. I can't wait for the box set. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to follow Crooked Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can also subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our producer is Chris Lord, and our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, Louis Vertel, and Kendra James. Our digital team is Megan Patzel, Claudia Shang, and Rachel Gajewski. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to Matt DeGroote, David Tolls, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support every week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.